Greetings, dear, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience, a very warm, open-arm audio embrace and a squeeze. This episode is brought to you by my company, One Circle Media. One Circle Media is a hybrid digital agency and media content creator. We create and design apps, websites, videos, social media content, and physical products. We are artists, directors, designers, producers, coders, editors, thinkers, makers, and creators who embrace story and creativity from design, web and app development, animation, docs, features, TV shows, digital and social media content to physical products. For our clients, we create content that builds networks and audiences across multiple platforms. Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a network, studio, brand, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain, reach out to me at John at OneCircleMedia.com. I'd love to hear from you. This episode is also brought to you by an app that I created called Still Believe. Still Believe transforms a picture in your home into video proof of your child's favorite magical characters. With the app, parents can catch the magic of the tooth fairy, leaving money under their children's pillow or Santa delivering presents on Christmas Eve in their home. You download the app, take a picture, and we create the magic. We utilize feature film visual effects artists to transform your picture into video. Just tell your kids that you have a special app that can detect and capture the tooth fairy then present them with the video proof in the morning. The look on their faces is priceless. Your Still Believe video is created in minutes, and you can then save it to your phone and share it on social media. The app is available for the iPhone and Android, and it's free to download. Our aim is to bring joy and wonder into the hearts of children around the world. Check it out at stillbelieve.co. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Working Experience. The working experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleet. There is no service on Stand the- clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. John, we need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? And HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. To stay late, Bob. Teamwork makes the dream work. They're moving in a different and after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Who ate my Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that? He was wow. moving his Sexual toenails at his desk. I can't take it anymore. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Working Experience Podcast. It is my pleasure today to have on as a guest, Aparta Mathur, who is... Uh, a researcher, writer for the American Enterprise Institute. Am I characterizing your job correctly? That sounds good, Matthew. Okay. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks very much. And um, a- as our listeners know, we talk about uh, a lot of different issues related to work and uh, job satisfaction, um, s- the issues surrounding kind of workism, uh, and you know, kind of anything related to uh, people's experience at work, and we're all, I'm I'm always very interested in not only like a specific issue, but what people actually do at their jobs, how they um, how they view their work in a broader context, and and why they're interested in it. So, uh, if you want to just tell us about yourself and how you came to this field. Sure. So I'm an economist by training. I actually studied in India, in Delhi, and then came to the U.S. in 99 to do my Ph.D. in economics from the University of Maryland. And, uh, you know, it was interesting when I got out, I honestly did not know much about the think tank world. I didn't know what a think tank really did. But the description of the job sounded really promising. I did want to do continue to do more research but I also wanted to do things from a policy perspective and to sort of figure out, you know, what's a nice blend of the two. And so AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, sounded like, you know, it would be the ideal mix of sort of letting you do your academic research, but with an impact on policy. And that's how I ended up at AEI in, in 2005. 
Okay. Uh, could you, um, as we discussed before I started recording, a lot of people don't, they, they've heard the word think tank. Mm -hmm. They've probably watched CNN, MSNBC, whatever, Fox News. Yeah. And they frequently have people on who represent different groups who do research would be probably fall under the broad umbrella of think tank. Mm -hmm. um, so could you kind of clarify maybe for our listeners what that means? Right. And, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, think tanks, each think tank has its own model. So, so AEI, for instance, we are um, a nonprofit. We hire people. I, I joined straight after my PhD. Uh, and uh, we have various divisions within a think tank. So we have economists, which is the division that I'm in, but we also have foreign policy and we have people doing education and health. So it's kind of like a university, but it has, you know, with, with different departments. Um, and the, we do end up doing a lot of research, but I, but I view it as uh, the way it was described to me when I was interviewing at AEI. It was like a university without students or a university uh you know that it, it, there, there's no teaching but it but the, the focus is still on research uh and it's also very focused on on policy so i think that you know that kind of distinguishes it from uh you know a, a regular sort of academic job uh, where the focus is primarily on research i would say the focus here is uh, a little bit of research and uh you know big bigger impact on on policy and so over my time at AEI, you know, we've been uh, the I've managed to cover, uh, I, I think, far more subjects than I would have done at a university. I'm not uh, in the broad uh, sort of definition of what an economist does. I, uh, you know, I've worked on things like tax policy. I've done work on labor markets. I've done work on paid family leave. So, so, so I feel like you're not, you know, it, there's also a university without borders um, uh, or, or strict borders definition of a think tank as well, which is that you have the freedom to work across a diverse area of subjects, a diverse uh, you know number of fields um, without sort of being told, well, you know, you're just a labor economist or you're a public finance economist. And so I, I think I've enjoyed sort of being able to traverse different uh, different topics Um without being told that they you know that you have to stick to one area and i think that's important for policy reasons as well because you realize that you know when you're looking at any one issue there are there are a million other things that impact uh, you know the, to the topic that you that you're covering and so having a better understanding and trying to move beyond just the immediate uh, you know, field or topic is critical so you know think tank does many things we we cover a range of uh, you know, subject subject areas, um, and we're also a little bit more tied to what what happens in DC uh, in terms of politics. So, so AEI is not a think tank that goes out and lobbies for on issues. We don't try and get legislation passed. Um, but we can have an impact uh, because a lot of the stuff that we write is then circulated, uh, you know, uh, to people on the Hill, whoever may find it interesting, uh, you know, it could be on the Republicans or Democrats. We're open to reaching out to, to both sides. Um, and the idea is simply to say, to be able to say things that, that make sense that, you know, look at the pros and cons of each policy and be able to, um, you know, hopefully offer good advice to, to people who actually make those decisions. So, so, uh, you know, it's a nice mix of, doing the research, but also trying to have an impact on, on policy by making sure that your work reaches the right audience. So if we took like, um, so I, we were doing a podcast, my uh, partner, John and I on, uh, we had done some research on the rise of minimum wage and mm -hmm. suicide rates declining. Right. Uh, guy, Dr. John Kaufman, along with two other associates, I think from Emory University, mm -hmm. had published this study. And that's where I ran across your name. That's and right. I, I think you, you know, you, you said something like, it's an interesting study. There are things to consider here. Yeah. Uh, kind of along the lines of like, the, maybe there's a deeper dive mm -hmm. into this. Or, so if you're studying something like that, or parental leave, uh, yeah. job satisfaction, I, I think are some other areas I saw. 
and you you publish a study on it, you publish a paper. Mm-hmm. What are you seeking? Like, what's the purpose of the publication of that paper? Say on the efficacy of parental leave or something like that. Right. So it's easiest to see that connection, I think, when I started my work on paid parental leave. So a lot of the other stuff I do is targeted at at an academic audience and, you know, often does end up in journals. Um, And maybe there are policy implications that we try to reach out to policymakers on. I think the biggest impact I've seen is with the paid parental leave work um, where, you know, I sort of started thinking about the issue of paid parental leave and how we could have a federal policy on paid parental leave, which is currently lacking. I mean, the U.S. doesn't have um, a, a law that that guarantees paid leave to, to workers when they need it, either when they become new parents or, ha- or have a medical need or, or a caregiving need. So when I first started looking at the issue, it was really you know, trying to say, well, let's look at how we can make it happen. What's the financing mechanism? How do we use existing tax credits to to make it happen? And then very quickly that, uh, you know, with some external funding um, uh, that I got, we were able to turn that into a much larger policy project. So, So I currently co-direct the AEI Brookings Paid Family and Medical Leave Working Group. Uh, I co-direct it with Isabel Sahil, who's at Brookings. But it's not just AEI and Brookings. It's, it's um, uh, you know, a, a working group that comprises people from other think tanks. It includes academics who have researched the issue of paid leave or, uh, you know, approached it from other perspectives, like looking at labor force participation and the outcomes of women in the workforce. So we had a pretty big group and we got together and and ideologically also, this was a very diverse group. It wasn't just people on the right and wasn't just people on the left, but people who offered a wide range of perspectives and who were willing to look at both the costs and the benefits of paid parental leave policies. And the group, I think, had a huge impact on the debate going forward because we did come out with a recommendation for how to do paid parental leave. It was it didn't it it wasn't just um, uh, you know paid parental leave is great and every government should offer it. We we actually looked at the costs of paid parental leave policies and we said, well, employ you know anybody who's looking at the issue needs to uh, look at the trade off between benefits and costs. We do still think that there, you know, the federal government needs to move forward on this policy, but you know, having a good understanding of both sides of the issue, you know, what are the costs to employers of offering paid leave? What are the benefits to workers of having paid leave? And, and I think, you know, with that report that we put out, uh, not only was it the recommendation of a you know fairly bipartisan or uh, ideologically diverse group, but we also put together a ton of the data and evidence and research uh, you know that has looked at how labor how women's labor force participation, for example, is impacted as a result of paid uh, paid leave. What happens to women and children's health as a result of paid leave? You know what happens when dads have access to paid leave. So I think just you know putting all of that research together. Uh, but then also concluding that, you know, we need to push forward on paid leave was like a huge breakthrough in sort of getting the left and the right to talk to each other. And I think since then, I, I do see an impact um you know, on the hill that that our work has had in combination with, of course, you know, the White House push on paid leave. So when we released the report, we were invited by Ivanka Trump to the White House to actually present our findings. And, uh, you know, they've and, and sort of been I, I have been much more engaged with the debate since then. And that doesn't mean that I'm out there saying, oh, this particular plan or even the plan that the A.I. Brookings group recommended is the ideal plan and that's what we should push for politically but it's just you know a way of saying that look we can we have put together the research for you we think that there is a middle ground that you know that would get the two sides to talk to each other we think that you know there are things that you need to consider that you know have not traditionally been looked at and i think that has allowed uh, you know congressmen and and policymakers to really come to the issue in a more informed way, in a more evidence-based way. And we're seeing a lot more momentum right now on the issue, especially on the right. So the left, the Democrats have always had, you know, um, the Family Act, which 
offers uh, paid parental leave and, and paid family and medical leave as well. But now we're seeing many more Republicans sort of come out, uh, come forward with their own proposals. So, so to me, you know, that is how impact works. That is how policy should work. And that's where I see the biggest success, you know, being able to approach an issue in a sort of uh, in a way that allows people to talk to each other that isn't ideological uh, that isn't uh, you know that is grounded in facts and evidence and 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 research and and so I you know to, to me that's ideal that I'm combining the sort of the economist and the research aspect of this with a really important fundamental policy piece and and that is having an impact on the debate how much would you say uh because, you know, in this, particularly in this era, and uh, not just this administration, but probably in the last, I don't know, 20 years, you might yeah. say, things have become very polarized. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's been kind of the mantra. I don't know how, I mean, that, that's the surface. I don't know how deep that goes. But, um, and this is not just in the last 20 years, but yeah. it right. seems like, and, and I think you can speak to this much better than I can, how much are people actually driven by data? Mm -hmm. Like if you just take something like climate change, the, the right. lament of scientists seems to constantly be, it doesn't matter what we say, it doesn't matter all the evidence, people will not move on climate change, and that seems very partisan mm -hmm. it, for, in broad strokes. So right. uh, is it sometimes a battle to get people to drop their, use the word ideology, what their mm -hmm. religious beliefs or whatever you would put and say, well, look, here are the numbers. Yeah. Is it, is it sometimes hard to break through people's like preconceived notions and things like that? I, I do think that that is true. I do think that, you know, people and policymakers often come at it from an ideological perspective and, uh, and often, you know, do ignore data and evidence and polling and you can present, you know, everything to them. And it's and it's really like, no, at the end of the day, I just don't believe that I want to do this. But but, you know, the success that I've seen with the paid parental leave, um, you know, work is that there is a way to break through that. I, I do think that when you, you know, present things um, in a way that also sort of allows them to align those findings with what they believe. So, so for instance, with the paid parental leave bill, uh, with the paid parental leave policy, I think it's Republicans have, a lot of Republicans like Senator Rubio and others have often put families at the forefront of their policy. So you do see Traditionally, they've talked about expanding things like the child tax credit because they say, well, this is really beneficial for families. And so it's always, uh, but when you talk about paid parental leave, you know, at least till um, I would say three years back, there was literally no momentum on the right to do anything on that. But now, uh, you know, with, with, sort of presenting the data and the evidence that, look, this is really a struggle for families, um, that this is really something that would ease the burden that working parents face, that this is something that we can do in a minimally costly way. And it's really about, you know, how we design the policy that matters, you know, that would that we need to figure out how do we do this in a way that doesn't burden businesses, but that still benefits workers. I think if you change the conversation to allow something that isn't always pitching one side against the other, I think it's always possible to make a breakthrough. And I think what, what was going on with parental leave was there was this... Um, you know, sort of feeling that, well, parental leave was all about workers and that if businesses were not providing paid leave, then, you know, the, to some extent that they were bad businesses and, that, you know, they didn't care enough about workers. And I think if you come in and say, look, there are legitimate costs to consider for businesses and a lot of businesses want to do right by their workers but are not able to do it because there are, you know, actual costs f to letting employees take leave, to actually maybe paying for that leave and, and you know, other other aspects of the policy, then I think you you can get the bo both sides to talk to each other. So so I, I sometimes think that, you know, when a policy idea comes up from a certain side, there's a certain perspective that, that comes with it that is not always appealing to people on the other side. But, but I think there are ways to 
get the two sides to talk to each other that that does break through that ideological divide that does you know allow people to say okay maybe i'm not all in but you know there is a starting point and and, and that's why i think it's uh, you know it's always helpful to to have the data the evidence and everything ready to go so that when policymakers do come on board uh, that's not the time to be scrambling for the evidence and the data and i see that happening with the climate um, with climate change too. I mean, traditionally, again, you know, we didn't see a lot of action on the right uh, to do more on climate change, but now we are, you know, we are seeing more, more uh, people on the right, more policymakers sort of coming on board and saying, okay, you know, what do we do about this? So, so let's not ignore the issue. What do we do about it? I, you know, whether or not I believe in climate change is is irrelevant. You know, we we can still do something to address pollution and um um you know but but if we can do it in a way that doesn't uh, overly harm our businesses that doesn't uh, you know in, involve raising taxes then maybe there's a way to to find a middle ground so i think it's always about you know let's have the data the evidence the you know the research ready to go but let's allow people to also find a middle ground to find where they fit into the policy and how you know how it's often a question of how you design the policy so that you can address the concerns of both sides and not just one side and i think that middle ground always does exist so it's sort of like uh, just to kind of boil it down in my own head like people have their ideologies and then you have to say like, okay, you're on the left, you're on the right, here's this policy, we have to try to make this work. So it's palatable to both sides. Yes, absolutely. You know, okay. what are you willing to give, you know, what are you willing to come to the middle for? I mean, honestly, even within the AI Brookings working group, you know, because we had people from the left and the right, there were often huge debates about, you know, how long should the leave policy be? Should it be six months as some people wanted or should it just be eight, you know, six weeks or four weeks as as others wanted? And so we realized just with, you know, within our working group that there were uh, people who thought very differently. But I think we agreed to come together because the overarching, uh, you know, concern was that if you did nothing, then you you're actually, you, you know, you you're not making any headway and you're not helping anyone. So rather than be stuck at the extremes, you know, we agreed to come together on a consensus proposal that isn't ideal for you know anybody on the left or the right. Even today, if you approach our working group members, you know, they have their own idea of how paid parental leave should be done and there are huge disagreements. But I think at the end of the day, if you can tell yourself, well, what is the larger goal that you're trying to attain? And, and, and if that is relief for working families, if that is relief for parents, then I think you ha you owe it to yourself and, and to the country and to society to, to be able to overcome those differences and to come together you know, on something that may not be your ideal plan, but that still, you know, gets the ball moving or the ball rolling uh, on this issue. Because there are, you know, many, many more people suffering um, uh, with the lack of a policy. Uh, and we we really need to do something, uh, something on it. And so if you really do care about your constituents, uh, you know, I think you have to bridge those divides and you have to agree to compromise. It seems like some... Politicians, senators, Congress people, whoever might say, uh, and I'm kind of thinking, Chris Christie popped into my head mm -hmm. when he just said he didn't believe in climate change. And mm -hmm. for some people, I'm wondering if they would be like, look, parental leave, yep, love it. It sounds wonderful, but look, I it doesn't sell to my constituency or climate <laughs> change. Or, so I'm just kind of wondering how much does sometimes it's like, I got to get reelected and this is right. not going to fly in my district. Mm -hmm. So what do you want from me? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how much like, I guess my question is like, have you run across people who are like, look, I, it sounds great, but I, I can't vote for this because it's just, I'm a Republican yeah. and that doesn't fly or I'm a Democrat and look, that doesn't fly. And there you go. Absolutely. Um, that yeah. That's absolutely true. And it's not, just amongst congressmen. I think, you know, there are good genuine debates to be had even within uh, organizations and even within the think tank community. And, you know, there are conservatives who feel like, 
well, you know, they, the federal government has no role to play in providing paid parental leave. I was going to ask you that, too. Yeah. If you run against like, hey, I like it, but this is not this is not our job. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it stems from sort of this conservative concern about, well, do we need more government? You know, isn't there too much government already? And if we if we now start saying, well, there's yet another, uh, you know, entitlement program that we're going to offer to people. Uh, and, you know, the, the concern is that this is just going to grow over time. And so the size of government grows and we're already sort of underfunded on other entitlement programs. And so what happens if you tack on a new one? And I think these are all legitimate concerns. Uh, and so you always have this, you know, trade-off between, well, what are the costs of not having a policy and what are the uh, you know costs of having a policy, and uh, you know against the against the what are the benefits of uh, you know allowing people to have access to parental leave? And so what we try to do in the report is sort of be more transparent about costs. We actually set up a cost calculator, um, uh, you know, online cost calculator that tells you if you design a policy with this duration with a certain duration level with a certain wage replacement rate these are the costs you know and what do, how do we who's going to bear the burden of of these costs you know is it going to be the employer is it going to be the employee so in our plan we actually you know made it uh, an employee payroll tax because we said we don't need new taxes on businesses but i think it's always possible to sort of look at each concern and say well what's the right solution you know if if we're concerned about the cost of these policies ballooning up you know let's get an estimate of what the cost look like and if it's you know if it's something that's palatable to people then let's uh, move forward with it otherwise let's think about redesigning the policy in a way that you know reduces costs further but i think you at least have to be at the starting point where you're willing to look at, at you know different estimates you're willing to say well there's you know there's a, there is a cost benefit calculation um and, and there you know and i and i want to move forward on it you're absolutely right there will be people who simply want to ignore the issue and who don't think that we need to you know, be doing anything. And it's not something that Republicans and conservatives should do. And I think, you know, my argument to them has, has always been, well, if you're not going to be part of the debate, you know, someone else will be. Uh, and and if you if you refuse to acknowledge climate change, if you refuse to acknowledge, you know, the, the burden that a lack of paid leave policies is, is um, imposing on the country, then, you know, Democrats are going to come and say, well, you know, then our way of doing these policies is the right way. And then there's no counter argument. So I think at least if you open your mind to the idea that, look, the country needs these policies. And if I if, if I can figure out, you know, what would work for me as a policymaker, what proposal am I willing to put forward that addresses a lot of the concerns that I have currently with other proposals, then I think you, there's a talking point and there's a way to start that conversation. But, you know, if if people don't want to engage in the debate, then I think the, you know, that that is a much tougher process to, to have to deal with. And, and I do think that you lose out, you know, I think those policymakers and the, you know, the party as a whole loses out if you're not willing to engage on the issues, because then, you know, some, the stuff that eventually passes in Congress will not be something that you are at all happy with. So so I would rather engage with the debate and say, well, I don't like the design of X, Y and Z policy rather than saying, well, I, I choose to ignore the policy completely because I don't think, you know, the government needs to be a part of it. Do you do you think your uh, your message reaches the the voters? I mean, Americans are famously deaf when it comes to numbers, charts, yeah. facts, like they don't, you know, like what you're saying to me right now, it's like, wow, here's the data, here it is. But then when I see people, all the Democratic candidates, Donald Trump, whoever else is running, mm -hmm. the messages are so overly simplified yeah. and dismissed as socialism or yeah. all Republicans hate you or whatever you know <laughs> so yeah, yeah i don't know if uh i don't know if i have a question in there but i was just wondering yeah, if that right. you yeah. know if you kind of see that you know like you've got all this data and stuff you're like 
this would be so much better if we could do this. And then, you know, you turn on the TV and CNN is not exactly putting mm -hmm. it all, all that out there. Um, You're right. It's often hard to, you know, try to convince people with just data and evidence and research. But I, but I think it, you know, so to the average vote, voter who's actually struggling with these issues, you know, it, there's no need to convince. I mean, I polling after polling, you see the Pew Research Center did a report on uh, paid leave and irrespective of whether you're conservative or liberal or Republican or Democrat, I mean, overwhelmingly, uh, you know, working families are saying, yeah, you know, it would be great to have a policy on paid leave because look, in the absence of these policies, I'm, you know, struggling, I'm going back to work, you know, within sometimes three days, within sometimes two weeks of having a baby and that's not working for me. So I don't think they need to, to they don't, uh, they're not going to benefit from us saying, oh, look, uh, you know, what's happening to women's labor force participation rates as a result of lack of paid leave. Let's look at, you know, what's happening, to, uh, why this is such a struggle for families, because I think they're living that experience. I do think data, evidence, and research does play a role uh, when it comes to convincing people on the Hill that this is an issue that matters and that this is an issue that crosses, you know, ideological or party lines and, uh, you know, that this is something that that we need to figure out what to do about uh, what to do about it. You know, what is the right policy going forward? So I do think that it plays a tremendous role there. Again, the messaging can be very simple, you know, even if it's somebody in the White House and all they need to do is say like, you know, President Trump does in the State of the Union that we need paid parental leave. I think it's fine to have the messaging be simple, uh, especially because you don't need to convince voters of the relevance of these issues. Uh, but you do need to, I think a lot of times it is the policymakers who need to be convinced, uh, you know, a lot more, especially because it's, while you can, you know, you can state that the issue matters and you can show polling that the issue matters, but the design of how to come forward with a policy uh, on the issue is really, really critical. And I, and I think that's often what holds, you know, policymakers back from moving forward on issues, because even though they agree that this is an issue, it affects working families, you know, whether it's climate change or, uh, you know, any any other uh, challenge that the country is facing, often a lot of times what's holding people back is, well, what what do I think about it? And how should I design the policy to so that it, you know, it fits in with where I am ideologically, but at the same time, it recognizes and meets the needs of my constituents. So uh, I think it's often just a question of helping them, you know, design the policy correctly or in line with their with their you know, with their principles, with their ideas. Theology, and not, you know, not so much about convincing people that there is a need. Um, I think it's pretty obvious that that you know, on on most of these issues that there is a need to have a policy. Um, I think, uh, you know, it, it's really well, what do I do so that I don't come off hurting my constituents? I don't come off, you know, burdening businesses and then having to worry about employment impacts and, you know, growth and, and things like that. What do I do that is safe and, uh, you know, and still possible to do and is not overly costly? And, you know, uh, it's it's those design issues, I think, that often hold back policymakers from from coming forward with proposals. Do you generally, I mean, I've heard the accusation that um, a lot of Americans, particularly uh, on the lower economic stratum, mm -hmm. uh, do not vote in their best interest. Like they mm -hmm. will not vote for, you know, uh, they, they won't vote for somebody who like wants, you know, universal health care, single payer, things like that. And it's kind of like, well, you would benefit from this, from mm -hmm. having health insurance, from having, you know, parental leave and things like that. Yeah. I, it's kind of a curious, uh, you know, and again, it's it's painting with a very broad brush, but I <laughs> guess it's it's sort of like, um, yeah, you know, you, if you just looked at all the facts, you would realize voting for candidate A would be much better than candidate B. But yeah. then you have things like ideology, patriotism, mm -hmm. small government, like individuality in this country is very, yeah. you know, a very promoted value 
So I was just kind of wondering if you, what you think about, you know, p- do people vote in their best interest? Do they look at the data and say, yeah, this would be better for me? Or are they kind of driven by those, you know, sort of maybe less rational forces, I guess I would say? I think it's really hard. I think sometimes sitting in D.C., we try to say, well, this would be in, you know, people's best interest to do. And maybe it's not, you know, maybe we don't understand the real struggles that people face and maybe they are being rational. Maybe they do understand, you know, they can distinguish between politician A and politician B and they know when someone's being, you know, doing something for campaign purposes um, and someone else who's, you know, and whether those proposals are ever likely to go through, to go through Congress. So I, I don't want to, uh, assume that people are less rational and that, oh, if somebody promised you universal health care or free health care, that, oh, you should go and vote for them. Because I think people realize that a lot of the promises that candidates make on, you know, the campaign trail may or may not ever really become a reality. I mean, there are tons of debates about is is this a good idea? Even if I promise you free childcare and free schooling and free healthcare, you know how much of this is really feasible? And so there, are, I think there are good questions to be asked about, you know, how can people promise so much free stuff? And uh, you know, will this ever really happen for me? So uh, I, I I do think they they have a wide base because at least in terms of intent. It, it it sends the signal to people that oh this candidate is you know looking out for the average um, low wage worker or the average middle class family and you know they care about our issues um, but there's so many other issues that you know someone else some other candidate may be appealing uh, you know maybe more appealing to them so for instance you know when President Trump was on the campaign trail I mean I think all of us sitting in D.C. did not imagine that you know he would become he would be next person in the white house um and yet it does seem that you know possibly a, some fraction of the v- vote that he got was people who felt left out in the current economy who who felt that you know their jobs whether it's manufacturing jobs or other types of jobs ha- had gone overseas and you know his simple promise of let's get those jobs back whether or not that was realistic, I think that was, you know, that was good messaging and that did appeal to a lot of people. And so you you can go around promising, you know, uh, free benefits or you can promise people, you know, their jobs and wages. And it's and it's really, you know, I, I do think people are rational and they do vote in their best interests. Um, uh, and of course, there could there could be a million other things, um, uh, you know, that 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 push them towards a certain candidate that you know, certain candidates are more appealing to them. So I I think it's hard for me to sit here and, uh, you know, and say, well, is this rational or irrational? But I do think that people, you know, can figure out which candidates, um, you know, are going to be sort of the best candidates for them. And that's how and that's how, you know, voting works. So so we may not always understand. And I think we don't always, um, you know, understand why sort of elections happen the way they do. But but I think there's, you know, there's, it, it's also a, a lack of understanding of just what people are struggling through and, um, you know, how how every particular candidate might be more appealing to some people than others. Well, I suppose Donald Trump being in the White House is a demonstration of a complete lack of understanding. <laughs> of <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of us were caught by surprise, and you know, oh yeah, it yeah. just um, it just it does tell you that you know there are many many more issues that we don't think about that matter to the average voter. Um, yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, I you know I live in the Northeast, and you know I have a master's degree. So does my brother. You know, my father went to law school. My mother has a master's degree. And it's, you know, I mean, I do vote Democrat. I consider myself a liberal. Mm -hmm. But now that I've gotten older, you know, even within the Democratic Party, as you were saying, there are certain candidates who are saying, all right, that plan sounds nice, but we cannot do that. You can't deliver on that. So stop talking about it. Yeah. That's (laughs) kind of let's get real. Yeah. And so and, you know, I can say, yeah, you're right. I mean, it it sounds wonderful. But if if they don't and and yeah, maybe there is this inkling 
among people who are like, you can't deliver on that. So why are you talking about it? So, yeah. And yeah. I, I think, you know, to a lot of candidates, it's more signaling than anything else. I don't know how many of them actually believe that if they came into the White House, that they would be able to push through a lot of the, you know, the free proposals that that they that they believe uh, that they can. I, I think it's it's more signaling and, you know, sort of appealing mm. more than the other candidate that, oh, I'm going to cancel your debt or I'm going to give you free health care. I'm going to do, you know, yeah. it's more populist than, um, than real to me, frankly. And I think a lot of voters do see through that um, and, and, and question, you know, what does this mean? As a country, we're facing huge fiscal debts and deficits and we are so worried about where, you know, where the economy is headed. And yet that isn't stopping a lot of these candidates from talking about all the free stuff. So, I think there is a mismatch between, um, you know, the the economy as it is and, and the kinds of ideas that are coming out. And and I think a lot of rational people will say, well, this is not going to happen. But, you know, I could still vote for the candidate because I think it 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 shows in t- intent and, you know, interest in looking after working class families. So I, I think it could still work. Um, but I don't think it's irrational to not believe every promise that that comes out of a candidate's mouth. Yeah, I would probably be irrational to believe <laughs> uh, most of what comes out of their mouth. Um, you know, I just looked up the American Enterprise Institute very quickly on Wikipedia. Uh, you're characterized, or your your organization's characterized as a conservative think tank. Would you Would you agree with that assessment? That characterization. Um, so we do say we believe in free markets and enterprise, and I think that is traditionally a conservative uh, viewpoint. Uh, I think we have, you know, very center right. And honestly, if you look at uh, the different scholars and the issues they work on, and the you know the policy ideas they put out there, there's a huge amount of um, sort of diversity in terms of how we think about issues. I don't think we neatly fit into being either left or right. For instance, my work on paid leave is, mm-hmm. um, you know, is I don't view it as a particularly conservative idea. And yet there are lots of conservatives who are now on board with the policy. Uh, and it does, you know, our proposal does talk about a new federal paid parental leave program. I've also written about carbon taxes a lot. Uh, and there are, you know, people at AEI who completely disagree with me that we need to have a carbon tax on, to do something on climate change. So I think what I love about AEI is that what it allows uh, competition of ideas. You you can write what you want, and you know as long as you're willing to back it up with facts and data and evidence, uh, you know, and stand up uh, and the work stands up to scrutiny. There's no sort of censoring of what you put out there. We allow scholars to take independent positions. So you will see, you know, you you can you will come across a lot of disagreement within the organization on, you know, very, very different issues and people have very different ideas and we we like to disagree with each other. Uh, so, yes, I, I do think, you know, we are more conservative than a lot of other organi- organizations, uh, but, I, but I would like to believe that, you know, that doesn't define us. I think we can, we have a lot of you know, a diverse set of viewpoints within the organization. And I, I don't think it really um, uh, sort of restricts anybody from putting stuff out there that may or may not be conservative. Well, it, you know, it strikes me that um, conservative and Republican, I guess particularly the word conservative, there are many conservatives who are looking at this administration are like, yeah. this is not us. Like, this is, I mean, like, what Republican and conservative, it can kind of pop up somebody with a red hat on at a yeah. rally, yeah, yelling and you know and all that. But then you have people like um, I'm trying to conjure up a name, but uh, who are more traditionally conservative and are saying, yeah, well, will not like, not, it. yeah, and it's like this is not our view of. I mean, well, from what yeah. I understand, the government deficit is is rather high right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at you look at the fiscal picture. You look at the, you know, projected deficits going forward, and a lot of people at AEI, including me, will say, "Well, that's not really how conservatives, you know, uh, view the world." 
Um, and there are, you know, a lot of people at AEI who will write against uh, policies that are coming out of this White House or who are coming, which are coming out of Republican, uh, uh, you know, uh, out of the Republican Party generally. So again, we don't tie ourselves to any particular party either. I think, you know, we're a think tank. We offer ideas that can be absorbed on either side as long as they make sense. And, and so, um, you know, it's uh, it's true. I, I think it's just very policy to policy based. I think, you know, if you you'll always find good ideas at AEI and they can be conservative or liberal and they can appeal to either Republicans or Democrats. Is there a certain amount of um, maybe distress that the Republican Party, those who seem to be more traditionally Republican, are not taking a harder line and saying this is not what we do, that they're sort of, uh, well, they've been accused of just going along, going along to get along, I guess you would say. I think there are. There is a certain amount of, uh, uh, you know, worry when it comes to things like, you know, tariffs and trade wars and, you know, all the uncertainty that comes with that. And we, you know, sort of believing that protectionism is the answer. So we have a lot of scholars who've written against that. Um, so, yeah, there is a concern that, uh, you know, maybe... Uh, uh, you know, that certain Republicans are going along with the White House and uh, this is not really how conservatives are. And you can see a lot of conservatives sort of writing out ag against these kinds of issues. I, I do think that, that, you know, a lot of this comes with each, with anybody who's in the White House. You know, often a lot of times the policies that are put forward are not, you know, there's not always a concern that, oh, does this, address the debt and deficit picture? Does it, you know, does it keep spending in control? I think a lot of times whoever is in the White House will push through their priorities and then worry about the fiscal picture later. So this is not new to this White House. I think we've, you know, we've seen it over and over again, but it's just, yeah, you, we, we do write about it. We do write against it. Uh, but this is just part of the political process. You know, any uh, president who comes in will push forward their priorities. You know, they're not there just to control the debt and deficit they do. They are in there to push forward, uh, you know, promises they made on the campaign trail. Um, and so, yeah, this this is a frequent, uh, you know, cycle and both uh, Republicans and Democrats can be accused of, um, you know, going down this path. So you might see the, uh, just from what you're saying, you might see the American Enterprise Institute as an academically rigorous organization that's committed to gathering data and presenting points based on evidence and debating and arguing for those points, as long as they are based on, on data. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are not particularly ideological. We don't put out stuff that is, you know, meets a certain party line or in, an institution line. Um, and we, yeah, absolutely do believe that you have to back anything that you're saying up by substance. And, and that's how you get respect and, you know, in, in, in the world. That's, you know, you're putting yourself out there. It's always your reputation and the Institute's reputation at stake. So, we always try to put forward our best work and make sure we it's error free and yep. um, you know is backed by substance and evidence. So just to kind of uh, wrap us up here, what what would be your advice to you know the average voter? You know, maybe with a, a college education, maybe not. Um, maybe they're undecided. Do they vote for yeah. Trump? Do they vote Democrat? Like, I mean, what, what would you say to that type of person who's really kind of maybe fishing around in 2020? I would say, you know, first of all, a lot of people will vote based on their personal circumstances. So we are, it, this is a good economy. A lot of people are much better off than they were four years ago. Uh, you know, jobs and wages are growing. Um, and um, it, it really, you know, I'm a lot of the evidence shows that low wage workers are benefiting a lot in this economy. Um, so, so it really does come down to bread and butter issues. You know, do you think the candidate who comes in is going to sustain this uh, growth, is going to sustain wage growth and jobs and, and um, uh, you know, a, a growing economy or is something else, uh, you know, or are the policies going to do that? I would also suggest 
you know, read widely on any policy issue that that is being debated. Uh, often the tendency is to just go and read the analysis from, you know, if, if you are a Democrat, you're going to read certain types of analyses. If you're a Republican, you, you know, you go the other side. I think uh, a lot of think tanks, a lot of uh, especially DC-based think tanks, I, I would say, are often, you know, putting out stuff that is is um, on opposite ends of the spectrum and uh, and you need to know that there is, a, you know, an opposing point of view. So, so I would just say if you, if you want to make an informed choice, if you want to understand really, you know, whether the proposals that the candidates are putting out make sense, you know, what would they mean for the economy going forward, I would say read you know, widely read uh, ideologically diverse uh, viewpoints, read think tanks on the left, the right, the center, you know, and that will help you make a much more informed and evidence-based decision than sort of going by, going just by promises made on the campaign trail or, you know, on the debate stage. Because uh, there's a lot of background uh, research that happens at, um, you know, organizations like AEI, where we're able to, you know, analyze issues. We have calculators that can tell us, well, what does this mean for the average household? What does this mean for the economy? And I, and so I think, you know, sort of informing yourself uh, on all of that, on trying whether when you're trying to figure out whether, um, you know, this is a good candidate or bad candidate. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for the country? I think read widely, read well, uh, and read ideologically diverse viewpoints uh, would be my um, suggestion. Okay, great. Well, Aparna Mathur, thank you so much for this uh, conversation. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsors, One Circle Media and the Still Believe app, the only app that delivers video proof of the Tooth Fairy and Santa by simply taking a picture. Download the app at stillbelieve.co today and amaze your kids. And if you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at john at onecirclemedia.com. I would love to hear from you. And that's it. The end. The sweet end. Until our next audio encounter.